Indo was out there, a so-called mini Valiant, trying to copycat, run the same strategy. And with that, a few months after putting on this trade, disasters struck. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Julian Kamakko. Julian, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. And I'm excited to talk about my worst investment. <laughs> and it's something that you've thought about, I think, pretty deeply. So I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But before we get into it, let me introduce you to the audience. Julian is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Accelerate, a leading provider of alternative investment solutions. Accelerate helps investment advisors, institutions, and individual investors diversify their investment portfolios, manage risk, and improve their portfolio's risk-adjusted return. Prior to founding Accelerate in 2018, he was the Chief Investment Officer of Ross Smith Asset Management. He started his career as an analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Currently, Julian is a director of the CFA Society Calgary. He has been featured in some of the world's top financial and business media, including Bloomberg, CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, BNN, Business Insider, and The Globe and Mail. And now, my worst investment ever podcast, Julian, take a minute and share with us the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Sure. Sounds great, Andrew. I don't know if it's that unique with almost 10 billion people on the planet. But I do my best to bring value to people and put a bit of a different spin on it. So in the context of this podcast, what I try to do differently, been in the hedge fund business a long, long time, managed various investment strategies, largely around arbitrage, risk arbitrage, closed-end fund arbitrage, convertible arbitrage, and additional strategies such as long-short equity, distressed debt, long-only value investing, alpha shorting. So a wide experience in various hedge fund strategies. And with that, it's always been an industry that is quite secretive, not a lot of transparency, and not a lot of innovation. Some people are, are trying to run hedge funds similar to the Buffett partnership that he ran mid-1950s to the late 1960s. <laughs> We're talking about 70 years ago, doing the exact same thing. So what I try to bring to the table is a mix of innovation and transparency, doing things that are much more investor-friendly on the hedge fund side, which includes radical transparency. I know that's a word or a term that Ray Dalio uses, but hmm. actually don't know what Bridgewater does at all. <laughs> but our via radical transparency is, is showing exactly how our strategies work, whether it's multi-strategy, long-short equity, absolute return, risk arbitrage, whatnot. We explain exactly how it works, precisely what we're doing, and have done some innovative things to make these types of strategies more accessible 
more liquid, more transparent, obviously, significantly lower cost. So there's a lot of innovation to be had in the alternative investment management segment because it's been a space that's been around for several decades and has largely stayed the same. So we're trying to change the game. And when you talk about the transparency versus not wanting to reveal what you're doing, why are you so comfortable with transparency when, let's say, others say, oh, well, you're just going to reveal what you're doing and you're going to lose the effectiveness of what you're doing. Let us understand a little bit more of your thinking there. So it's similar to a lot of things in life that, you know, you look at someone like Tiger Woods or LeBron James or, you know, anyone performing to the highest level. It's not hard to figure out how they do it. But what's incredibly difficult is to do it as well or mimic that, right? So you can try to copy our strategies, but it requires a significant amount of experience and just hard work. <laughs> and with the competitive fees we charge, it's, like, it's just worth it to let us do it for you, mm. right? So there's the notion of it not being worth your time to replicate because it's far easier to, to just let us do it for you. And there's plenty of analogies, right? Like, you know, you're not going to start a basketball team and, and be on it when you can find much better players, younger, faster. They practice more, they put in the time, they put in the effort. We're talking about, you know, 80 plus hours per week for decades and, and many, many years building up that talent and experience and know-how and database and, and all those all that skills and, and knowledge required that once people find out, they're like, actually, I'll pass on that. That's way too difficult. I'll just let you do it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, I do some seminars and stuff and I basically tell them, in this seminar, I'm going to tell you everything you need to go do what, what I can also sell you. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, you got to need some sort of legal representation sure you could you know study to become a lawyer on your own mm. or you could just hire a professional to do it right so like many things in life it's easier if you just even if you know how to do it I would rather just get a professional who's focused on that to do it for me right yeah and the other thing that's interesting is when you you know study businesses and try to understand strategy and the things that they did. When I was younger, I thought that strategy was a pretty complex thing. And then you realize, no, actually, great strategy is really simple and you know consistently executed. And then you realize that all the attempts by people to try to kind of conceal their strategy and stuff, the reality is, is that you know it's the execution of that strategy on a consistent basis that really makes that strategy work. So I I feel a lot like you do, I'm a lot less worried about. And all the other thing too, that I said to my business partner many years ago, when he said, what if somebody steals our Excel model that we've created? And I said, within one year, we're going to be miles ahead of where they're sitting on that model that they got through theft, basically in that case, and they're not going to be able to develop it, but we are going to be a mile ahead and that needs to be our commitment to continuous improvement. One of the other questions I have before we get into the big the big question is, you know, you talk a lot about diversify, manage risks, risk adjusted return. And I'm just curious for the for the listener out there. I mean, there's some pretty standard ways to reduce risk. And then there's like some really complex ways that can sometimes be difficult 
for a fund that that's investing, let's say globally, where it's harder to hedge certain positions or more expensive. If I think about diversification, I first think about, okay, first diversify within you know, your equity portfolio, don't be too overexposed in one place or another. The second is diversification across asset classes where you add in maybe some bonds and you add in some gold and occasionally some people may add in a commodities or something like that. And I'm just curious. And then, then of course, there's some trading things like stop losses and things like that. But are there other types of risk management that you see that people could take advantage of, or are those really the core things that cover 80, 90% of it? You got to some of it, but I can talk about how I approach risk management. I always like to use the phrase risk management before it's too late. You hear about a stock market crash and then people are like, oh, I'll buy put options. And <laughs> they're just doing the equivalent of buying home insurance after the uh, house fire burned down the house which is a terrible idea. So risk management before it's too late refers to being prepared for anything that can happen in the global economy, markets, etc. And with that, a second phrase that I really like is they say that diversification is the only free lunch in investing. Now, if you talk to a lot of people, they just go with, traditional asset classes, stocks, bonds, cash. And that worked for quite a while. Like mm -hmm. They had the benefit of a steady decline in interest rates from the early 1980s to the early 2020s. And so when uh, the 10-year yield goes from 15% to 50 basis points, providing a massive tailwind to bonds, and more specifically, you know, with that, a good tailwind to the 60-40 stock and bond traditional portfolio, people thought that was sufficient diversification and get, got lulled into a false perception that bonds diversified a stock portfolio. So I was speaking with you know, a potential client 18 months ago when the 10-year yield was at 1%, and I asked them, why do you own treasury bonds yielding 100 basis points when you know, inflation is higher than that? And there's really um, not a lot of upside potential here. He said, oh, it's simple. I own those bonds to protect our equity portfolio when that trades down. Because stocks or when bonds protect equity portfolios because they'll rally in a recession. And boy, they could not have been more wrong. And 2022 really showcased what actual diversification is. Stocks were down about 20% and bonds were down about 20%. And what people forgot is that in inflationary environments, stocks and bonds become positively correlated, i.e. move in the same direction. I like to joke that in 2022, the QQQ ETF, the NASDAQ, and the TLT ETF, long-term treasury bonds, were the same asset. They're near, nearly 100% correlated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, it was all one big duration bet. And with that, 2022 proved that you know, the 60-40 portfolios not balanced, nor is it diversified. So with that, I always think of like a stock portfolio, whether you own 5, 10, or 500, that's one asset. You own one asset. They're all highly correlated for the most part. And you want to be diversified globally, not just you mm -hmm. know, S&P 500 or focused in one country. 
And then bonds, that's a big duration bet. You can diversify the fixed income side of things. But one really interesting stat and the framework that I approach diversification is that if you go from one asset, say stocks, to two assets, you have a big step down in risk. I'm talking about uncorrelated assets. But really the sweet spot is if you can include six uncorrelated asset classes. So imagine as you add uncorrelated asset classes to a portfolio, you have this steady decline in volatility until you know the additional benefit of adding more asset classes doesn't really move the dial that much. Mm-hmm. And that sweet spot is generally around six uncorrelated assets. And with that, imagine going through 2022 and owning strategies that were actually up double digits. Sounds like a great idea, right? And that's the true essence of diversification such that you have strategies with either zero correlation or perhaps negative correlation to your traditional asset classes. And those are your diversifiers. And the goal being, you know, you can have a portfolio doing this, or you can have a portfolio doing that. Which one would you prefer? And to follow that up, the asset class, a lot of times people slice up the equity market into many different slices, and then they refer to those slices as different asset classes, which I think is really a misnomer. You know, as you said, equity is pretty much an asset class of itself. We can play around within that asset class to build more diversification, but overall it is one asset class. And if I think about bonds, that's, I would say is a second asset class. Some people would say, okay, maybe gold or precious metals is a Mm -hmm. third asset class. Some people would say commodities, but you could also argue that commodities include some of those precious metals, but let's strip out the precious metals and say, Okay, commodities, soft commodities, you know, hard commodities, excluding precious metals. Okay, now we're maybe at a fourth asset class. Would that would you call that an asset class? Oh, certainly precious metals, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, and additional additional ones, you have everything besides traditional asset classes, stocks, bonds, and cash. So we refer to everything besides those as alternative asset classes. And within that, there's a myriad of various uncorrelated alternative investment strategies. So like Uh, raw land, would that be an example of a different asset class? And are there investment vehicles that can give access to that? Real estate, farmland, infrastructure. So there's, I classify alternatives into two segments. There's Mm -hmm. illiquid and liquid alternatives. So on the illiquid side, you have real estate infrastructure farmland, music royalties, venture capital, private credit, leveraged buyouts. Then on the liquid alternative side, there's cryptocurrencies, precious metals, uh, hedge fund strategies, and within hedge funds, long-short equity, multi-strategy, managed futures, arbitrage, market neutral, Mm -hmm. CTA strategies, tail risk hedging strategies, risk parity, distressed debt, event-driven, all these different strategies within hedge funds, and then commodities, also a a liquid alternative. And yeah, there's just a lot, a lot beyond just stocks Mm. and bonds, and they've never been more accessible to the everyday investor. You can find the vast majority 
of these alternative asset classes now in easy to use low cost ETFs. Right. And I guess that's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That's one of the big values that Julian brings to the clients is helping to understand. I'm fascinated by, of course, risk because, well, this is a risk reduction podcast ultimately. And so it's a great discussion to understand about that. So I appreciate that discussion. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure, that sounds great. So I'll start off just given my you know, career background. So started out in the mid-2000s as a young investment banking analyst, you know, working 90, 100 hours per week on M&A transactions, so mergers and acquisitions, advising. And as an investment banking analyst, you're the one doing the grunt work, doing the Excel modeling, accretion, dilution, merger models, and putting together PowerPoint decks. So you, you become a real ninja in Excel and PowerPoint and worked on some really interesting deals and got very good insights into the inner workings of mergers and acquisitions, equity offerings, and the capital markets. So great place to start a career. And from that, went to uh, a startup hedge fund. And at the time, cut my teeth doing closed-end fund arbitrage, which was an awesome trade, specifically during the great financial crisis. 0809, you could generate you know, nearly risk-free trades that at one point were yielding over 50% annualized, 50 to 100% annualized returns, just because there was very, very liquidity in the market and people were desperate to uh, sell. So arbitrage mm -hmm. spreads were incredibly wide. And after that, got into different arbitrage strategies, volatility arbitrage, convertible arbitrage, and, and one of my favorites, and Warren Buffett's favorite, which is risk arbitrage. And so Buffett has been conducting arbitrage investments, I think, ever since the 1950s. If you read back on some of his Buffett partnership letters, or even Berkshire Hathaway's annual reports, specifically their 1988 letter to shareholders, he details quite a few of their arbitrage investments. And that's contrary to popular belief, where he says, oh, buy a good company at a fair price. Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway made their best returns conducting arbitrage. Mm. So it's it's been a, a great investment strategy for many, many decades. And with that, in 2012, I launched a standalone risk arbitrage strategy. Started out with a $5 million investment from a handful of wealthy investors just to conduct this risk arbitrage investment strategy. Now, the goal of risk arbitrage is to generate consistent, high consistent returns. So high sharp ratio, high risk adjusted return on a consistent basis, ideally double digit annualized returns and no down years, which is a tough feat. But if done properly, it can produce what I believe is, you know, one of the best absolute and risk adjusted investment return profiles. So 2012, our, our first year, the funny thing is, you know, I was pretty young when we started it. Uh, we'd wake up at 4 a.m. every day in the office by 5 a.m., working, uh, you know, 80 hours per week, weekends, evenings, holidays. For the first four months, I was, you know, a lot of pressure on myself, was sick to my stomach every single morning, but still managed to have a really good first year, low volatility 
I had just a handful of down months, maybe that the worst was down 1%, but produced double digit return with low vol, very little drawdown. So investors were happy and kind of continued that for the first several years. And the fund grew significantly. Investors were happy. And with that, after about three years, a really good track record. This takes us to 2015. Now, 2015 was an interesting environment in the M&A business. It was all season for, or sorry, open season for pharmaceutical mergers. At the time, a huge trend was something called a tax inversion. Now, what a tax inversion was, and it was very popular with pharmaceutical companies, would be they would take over a foreign company to redomicile offshore in order to lower their tax bill. It's a pharmaceutical company. You could do that, become non-US corporation, and therefore pay significantly lower tax rate. So we saw companies like activists do this and quite a few others. And that really buoyed M&A activity as domestic U.S. pharmaceutical companies were rapidly looking to conduct tax inversions by acquiring non-domestic competitors. And that was the environment. And also, if you remember a company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals, VRX, they were rapidly consolidating the pharmaceutical space. Their business model is dramatically different than their competitors or, or sort of the old school pharma companies. You, know, you had the, the Pfizer's and the Merck's and the GSK's and such that were heavily reliant on research and development to fund their growth or to produce their growth. So they invested heavily on R&D. So along came a former McKinsey consultant, Michael Pearson, who got hired by an activist hedge fund to run Valiant. And Valiant had conducted already a tax inversion or redomiciled their Canadian-based. Uh, so not part of the S&P 500. They're part of the, uh, the Canadian benchmark, the TSX. And with that, their attitude towards growth was completely different. Michael Pearson's attitude, his thoughts were, his thesis was such that R&D is wasteful. They grow through acquisition. And they were doing just an absolutely, an absolute blitz of M&A acquisitions, incredibly active. They would do hostile takeovers and they're just gobbling up everyone. And it was working. Their stock was on fire. It was doing exceptionally well. If you remember uh, Bill Ackman at the time, he was just praising the accolades of Michael Pearson and Valiant's business model. So it was a highly respected strategy, both on Main Street and Wall Street. Analysts were going gaga over it. Investors loved it. And the stock was doing nothing but going up. So it's like, if you didn't own Valiant, you're doing something wrong. And that started to reflect on others. And you saw copycats saying, wow, this is this consolidation is really working for Valiant. They're growing like crazy. They become, I believe, the largest company on the Canadian exchange by market cap. So the number one in the TSX very, very quickly. And some copycats started to spring up. 
and it wasn't surprising to see that their shares were also performing very well. This rapid consolidation strategy, no R&D, so it was very much financial engineering. Now at that time, as I indicated, tax inversions were all the rage, and we were active on these within the portfolio. And in order for a tax inversion to work, the acquirer and the target had to have certain characteristics in terms of relative size and the type of transaction to make it work. So what the acquirer was trying to accomplish with a certain size of target was to issue shares, do a deal via, via all share, and with that, redomicile into a foreign jurisdiction. So generally, they would look for a target around 25%, take them over, and carry on as a foreign entity subject to much lower tax rates. And with that, one M&A trade that we put on that looked quite attractive was you had a Canadian company called QLT. QLT was a failed biotech company that just had a bunch of cash. So they're trading at roughly cash value, not a lot of prospects aside from the cash that they had on the balance sheet and perhaps some tax losses. But one redeeming factor was that they're a Canadian not American, and so a prime candidate for an inversion. So that inversion came away via a definitive merger agreement with a U.S. company called Auxilium that was looking to run this new pharma playbook, redomicile offshore via a tax inversion merger, then conduct M&A growth that had really been proven over the last few years and was super, super hot in the market at that time. So the deal that was struck was a US entity called Auxilium. Auxilium Therapeutics was looking to run that same playbook. So struck a friendly deal with QLT to do an all-share merger. That would result in this tax inversion and Auxilium would take over QLT and redomicile to Canada. And to do that, in an all-share deal of that size, the requirements to consummate this merger was not only did you require a successful shareholder vote at the target, so QLT shareholders, and in Canada, if it's a plan of arrangement, that's 66 and two-thirds. Additionally, since Auxilium was issuing approximately 25% of their shares outstanding in this merger, their shareholders, i.e. the acquirer's shareholders, would have to approve the deal as well. So they, they struck the deal and it's going along and, you know, there's a spread. And so if you go long the target, short the acquire, according to the share exchange ratio, it'll be out here, say like, you know, it's a 5% spread that would close in three months right? 5% spread over three months would be about 20% annualized, right? Which is, which is a very attractive return that you can earn theoretically, irrespective of what the market does. Market goes up, market goes down. As long as the deal closes, you generate that very attractive rate of return. One trick to that deal is you have the short position, right? A short position in environment of rapid pharmaceutical company mergers and acquisitions, friendly, hostile. And the key risk on this 
specific deal and a tax inversion in general is where they have to do an all share deal because in an all cash deal, the acquirer's shareholders don't need to vote on it. However, in an inversion where they're issuing about 25% or more of their shares, the acquirer's shareholders have to vote. So that, that produces a big risk. So we put on this trade and it's fairly you know, decent size of our portfolio, 4%, both on the long and the short approximately. And over time, I got the inkling, it's like, you know, there's a lot of consolidation happening. I'm worried that, you know, the key risk here is someone could make a play for Auxilium, the acquire, the stock in which we have a large short position, and that could be very painful. So what we are doing is we are buying call options on Auxilium, utilizing some of that spread available to, to kind of protect in that awful potential scenario. Now, after... After a few months, or prior to getting into that, I should I should talk about one more company, and this company is called uh, Endo Endo Pharmaceuticals (ENDP). At the time, Endo was run by a gentleman by the name of Rajiv De Silva. Now, Rajiv was basically Michael Pearson's protege, also ex McKinsey consultant, also worked for Michael Pearson at you know, conducting Valiant's new strategy, inversion, rapid roll-up of the industry, no R&D, be extremely aggressive with deals. And so Endo was out there, a so-called mini Valiant, trying to copycat, run the same strategy. And with that, a few months after putting on this trade, disaster struck. Endo came and made a hostile takeover bid for Auxilium, the acquirer in this M&A deal in which we had a short position in to hedge our QLT long. We had that merger arbitrage and trade on, mm. long QLT, short Auxilium. And then Endo, this third-party interloper, came in and bid for the acquirer. Now, like the key risk and my biggest mistake that I learned from is that when the acquirer has a shareholder vote on a deal, that puts the acquirer in play. And by in play, I mean, you know, subject to a potential hostile takeover. Because Endo offered a 30% plus premium for Auxilium's shares. Now, if you're a shareholder of Auxilium, would you vote for this takeover of QLTI? Or would you vote for you know, being taken over by Endo at 30% higher? <laughs> it's not a difficult decision to be made. Mm. And so Auxilium was put into play instantly. A QLT, it was clear as day that that deal was dead. I still remember the conference call after hours. This bid was revealed after hours. And the Endo CEO, Rajiv De Silva, said, you know, it's contingent upon the QLT deal being terminated. And I already knew that was the case because there's no way the Auxilium shareholders would vote for the QLT deal when they had this big premium by selling to Endo, whose stock was going crazy. So the effect on us is Auxilium short, we got our face ripped off, that rallied like crazy. Remember, we did hedge some of it with call mm. options, but it clearly wasn't enough. Not only that, but you're getting punished on both sides of the trade because the target QLT 
is Not dropping happening. double digits, right? So it's this double whammy, face ripped off on the short as it surges and get crushed on your long as it plunges. So it was kind of like a you know, shit sandwich if you want to talk about it, where the, the loss on that trade was significantly higher than expected. Granted, the QLT deal failed. Auxilium ended up signing up with Endo in a hostile turn friendly deal. That deal closed. And, and over time, it actually proved to be a horrifically bad acquisition for Endo, as everyone, including myself, expected. If you look at Endo's stock, if you try to look it up, it no longer exists. It went bankrupt, went to zero. Within a year of closing the Auxilium deal, they already had a massive, massive write down. The CEO got fired and the stock plunged. Valiant, as many know, their stock plunged. Their CEO got fired. They had all this fraud going on. They had to split the company. Now they're trying to, they're still trying to rebuild, but I think that mm. stock's down about, it didn't go to zero, but it's, it's pretty close down 90, 95%. But was definitely my worst trade ever. I detailed it in a blog post I called the first time I lost $1 million. <laughs> and the lesson that I learned as an arbitrager is you never put on a merge arbitrage trade in which the acquirer has to stage a shareholder vote. Because 100% of the time, like to put on that merge arbitrage trade, you need to be short the acquirer because there's a share consideration. And with that, the existence of a shareholder vote on the buy side, on the acquirer side, puts that acquire in play. It puts your short position in play and makes it vulnerable to a hostile takeover. And then you get your face ripped off on the short and you lose on the long. So it's a double whammy of losses that, in my opinion, it's just not worth taking that risk. I got burned on it almost 10 years ago and have not and, and will not ever put on that trade again. Unless, it, of course, if, the, the acquirer has a controlling shareholder that, that would block it. But, you know, I, that's my words of wisdom for mm. anyone looking at merger arbitrage. Never put on a, an M&A trade that has the buy side vote. And just to be clear, if it hadn't had gone to the shareholder vote and it would have just been the management team allocating cash resources that they had to acquire, then basically... They didn't have to pull together shareholders to, to to even think about this, and as a result, you didn't have an option. You didn't have the opportunity of, you called it an interloper, but as a third party coming in, there's just not an opportunity for them to seduce the shareholders yeah. away. Exactly. There's no leverage there. Yep. However, when there's leverage in a shareholder vote that's going to be voted down, the board of directors of the would-be acquire and the one now subject to a hostile bid, they know the jig is up. Their shareholders aren't going to vote for uh, an acquisition that they're going to make when they can sell to an interloper at a large premium. Like, no shareholder is going to vote <laughs> that way, and, right? And why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be, let's just imagine this same situation and that the company, the acquirer is sitting on you know a reasonable amount of cash and a third party comes in and says, I'll better allocate that cash. It's a stupid deal that they're doing. I'll, you know, come in and try to try to make an, a bid for the company. I mean, they're always free to do that. 
but that would just be too difficult if there wasn't this leverage point on the shareholder vote? Yes. So specifically with a U.S. entity in the U.S., there's a mechanism called the poison pill, which effectively protects companies from hostile takeovers. Mm. However, the existence of the shareholder vote on an M&A deal, it makes them extremely vulnerable and basically eliminates a poison pill <laughs> or the effect of potential ones. So it puts them in play and makes them vulnerable. And in Canada, poison pills don't, don't really work either. They get cease traded and, and fully puts the company in play. But yeah, it is that mechanism of the shareholder vote at the acquirer side that creates that leverage such that a hostile would-be hostile acquirer can step in and present something to shareholders that's significantly more attractive because for a hostile takeover to be effective, it needs to be at a significant premium to the unaffected price. I'm talking about 30% or higher. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, and one one more thing, yep. like from a board of directors standpoint, they're looking at issuing shares in this initial deal. However, if someone comes in and says, okay, you're willing to issue shares, i.e. sell them at say $10. Mm. If we come along and, and are willing to buy them at 30, 40, 50% premium, you know, 13, 14, $15, how could you say no to that when you said right. yes to issuing them at 10? <laughs> right. Got so it. it jig is up from the board of directors and they really have no choice. Well, I think you've explained it very, very well and it's pretty clear. So I think my my big takeaway is that anything can happen and you've got to just, you know, the idea of arbitrage, you know, used to mean when I was young, what we would call a riskless profit. But nowadays I would say arbitrage is just a term of taking some opposing positions that may or may not be in a riskless and other cases, it may be that there is some residual risk, whether you're, let's say, more long or more short. So I'd just say, be careful for the listeners out there. When you hear the words arbitrage, it doesn't mean riskless arbitrage. It can mean that at times, but generally it doesn't. So let me ask you, what's a resource you'd recommend for our uh, listeners? That's Probably a great question. Go read the story, but that's, that's a good one. <laughs> So there's a lot online. I encourage listeners to be on Twitter. I find that to be a great resource. You can yeah. follow me at Julian Klamachko on Twitter. We post a lot of research and insights on our website, accelerateshares.com. I did write about this yep. story a number of years back. And for investors, I think one resource, especially starting out, that I found quite helpful there's investment websites, one being, you know, Value Investors Club. I was a member of that for many, many years. So it's, you know, if you can get your hands on professional research, I think that mm. helps out a lot and read as much as you can. There's a lot of good investment books out there. So some of the books that that I would recommend, my personal favorite, it's kind of got a funny title. It's called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by <laughs> Joel Greenblatt. Yeah. And it's it's a classic. There's also one that I don't advise to buying because it's incredibly expensive because it's quite rare, but it's called Margin of Safety. You can find a a PDF version online. It's Mm. by Seth Klarman, another well-regarded investor. And in addition to that, 
You know, the stuff by Graham, Intelligent Investor, that that's always a good one to look at. Peter Lynch, he's written some good yeah. books. So there's a, there's a ton of uh, great books out there that you can glean a lot of good knowledge. And blog posts, people posting online, investor forums, Twitter, so much for resources. And, <laughs> and most of all, once you read about it, the best way to learn is to practice by doing. So mm-hmm. try it out yourself and don't risk more than you can lose. Yep. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Julian, I want to thank you for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yes, Andrew. Thank you for having me on your show. And I will part with my favorite quote from Warren Buffett. He says, teach a man to fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to arbitrage, feed him for life. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.